From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning, I'm Larry Mantle. COVID-19 testing is gradually increasing, giving health officials a somewhat better picture of the coronavirus's spread. Limited antibody testing is also going on in L.A., the Bay Area, and New York. But officials aren't yet sold on the methodologies or tests themselves. We'll talk with today's medical expert about our latest knowledge on the virus and possible reopening of businesses. A former staffer in Joe Biden's Senate office alleges he sexually assaulted her in 1993. The allegations dividing Democrats, some of whom think all allegations should be believed, others who are questioning the accuser's account. It's all coming up on Air Talk. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a good start. Coming up in our second hour, we'll look at the possibility that in November, the election in California will be held completely by mail. We'll talk about the pros and cons of that, as it appears to be a likely response to COVID-19 and concerns about people gathering in public even so late in 2020. Joining us to talk about the latest about COVID-19 is UC San Francisco Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Dan Kelly. Dr. Kelly, welcome to Air Talk. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate you having me on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, we just have the latest numbers to share with the state of California. Close to 1,800 deaths so far from COVID-19. Los Angeles County uh, has uh, at least 942 deaths, uh, and the state pays about 80 people a day over the past week that have died from the virus. Where do you see us at on the curve of um of hospital cases, admissions, as well as fatalities from the coronavirus? Well, that's a really good question, Larry. And, and um, I think every day we're, we're learning something new about, about uh, the coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. Uh, I think that we peaked uh, in, in terms of this current wave. Uh, how slow we're declining, though, however, remains to be seen. Uh, we're certainly seeing uh, less new admissions, new hospitalizations of COVID patients to, uh, around the country per day. But we're still seeing a lot, a lot of COVID patients. And uh, I mean, I think that, that that goes across the country, not just uh, California, which I think has been extremely lucky because of just really outstanding public health measures, both in L.A. and around the state, um, thanks to the work of like Governor Newsom and, and a lot of uh, departments of public health. But you know, in, in New York, things are really difficult and really challenging. So I was on the phone last night talking to a friend, a physician who is working at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. And I mean, it's 95% COVID patients uh, in the hospital. Uh, they've expanded number of beds that they can uh, that they can put in the hospital. Almost everybody is an ICU type patient on a ventilator you know, mortality rates are extremely high of those being ventilated. They're still seeing uh, many, many new admissions every day. And, uh, you know, the numbers, the numbers continue to, uh, to the numbers of cases in California 
continue. Um, so, you know, I think that we're, you know, I, I think anyone, anyone will recognize that we're, uh, we're trying the best we can, that the, the numbers are improving, the growth rate is slowing, but, um, you know, we use this, we, but it's, it's not good enough and we're not there yet. And I know that that's probably frustrating for some people to hear, but, um, but that's why we're still doing the sheltering in place. Um, you know, if, if you look at, if you look at California, there's this, uh, there's this thing we talk about, it's called a growth curve. And, and there's a number that we kind of look to be below and that's, and that's one. And uh, it looks like all the disease modeling suggests that we only really got below one uh, when less than a, the past month, even though we've been doing this shelter in place thing for, you know, what has it been? Seven weeks, eight weeks. I think we've all lost count, but, but, um, but it, we've been, uh, we've certainly, like uh, now are below one, uh, particularly in the last several weeks. And that means that the number of new infections that one person has um, is producing less than one infection. So things are dropping, um, you know, but they're, they're dropping, they're not dropping quick enough. And, you know, we need to give it more time and, uh, and we need it to be pretty low because we don't want it to be, we don't want to be in the middle of another wave. All right. Hold that thought. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle, Dr. Dan Kelly, our guest from UC San Francisco, assistant professor of epidemiology. He's also an Ebola researcher and working on COVID-19 projects right now. If you have questions for Dr. Kelly, we're at 866-893-KPECC. 866-893-5722. A chance for you to ask about the virus, the latest developments on COVID-19, 866-893-5722. In Sweden, they have uh, taken a very different route than other European countries or the U.S., Dr. Kelly. There, as you know, uh, schools have remained open. Most businesses have remained open. They've advised more vulnerable residents and older residents uh, to avoid going out, but otherwise have largely gone about their business, asking people to try and keep some distance, but still um, not closing down the economy. They have seen a higher death rate than their Scandinavian neighbors, but not as high as uh, countries, of course, like Italy and Spain. One of the things that their health director has said is that even with the higher number of, of deaths per 100,000 currently, that they expect to get to herd immunity much faster and that in the long run, they will come out at least even and won't have wrecked their economy in the process. Your response to that contention? Well, herd immunity is something that we talk about around uh, when we hit about 70%. And, you know, first of all, I just want to back up and say like 20, 25%. Who knows? The antibody tests are not that great. Um, you know, we're getting a lot of false positives, so that could be that number could be inflated. Um, you know, five x easily, and and um, so I mean, the collateral damage. I mean, I think that that's anyone's that's anyone's guess in terms of how they value human life. I mean, you know, you're gonna people are gonna die as you get to seventy percent of your population. The percentage probably is not going to change. So if we're seeing one to five percent of people in the U.S. dying, 
70 percent of the, the U.S. population, you can do the math. It's pretty high. And it just is a question of, you know, are we as a society uh, willing to accept that? Is that what we want for our for our brand? But 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 the contention from the Swedish public health uh, director, as I understand it, is they don't think they're going to have a higher death rate. They're they're experiencing things more intensely now, but going to get to herd immunity faster is I is what I understand their argument. So I don't think they're contending they're going to have more deaths than Norway or Finland overall, even though they're experiencing more deaths now. Do you do you think that that is an an, an accurate conclusion? Maybe I'm not totally following you, but I think the percentage of people dying per day is not going to change. Uh, why do you think that? Why do you think that it might change over time? So my understanding, and maybe I just don't understand his argument, but what I understood him saying is that they are going to have more deaths in the short run period. But if you look over a year period of time, Sarah, however long till there's a vaccine for COVID nineteen that over time, the deaths are not going to be higher in Sweden because more people are getting exposed earlier on that then they'll have a degree of protection later on. Oh, well, yeah, no, I don't buy that because because I mean, I think that that um, there's not really a we don't have clear evidence that, you know, like. uh, more people are having asymptomatic infection in Sweden than other parts of the world. That just doesn't even make sense to me. So, um, and it doesn't make sense to me because, um, you know, the, the exposures that one person is getting in Sweden are the same type of exposures that one, one person is getting in the U S. So, you know, I think like the, uh, the percentages of detected illness in across the clinical spectrum of disease, which ranges from asymptomatic to Severe, critical, and dying is pretty much the same across across around the world. You know, we were seeing eighty percent of mild cases being diagnosed in uh, China. You know, we've been seeing something relatively similar in the U.S. A lot, m- many more mild cases than severe cases, but we're still seeing a huge proportion of severe cases. So, I don't know. I think that uh, we really need to. Um, just consider the fact that we've are we're going to hit a million infections in the U.S. and we're it's good to be looking at what other countries are doing because certainly like we can learn from what other countries are doing. But uh, I take each lesson with uh, you know some caution. And you don't see any trade off with doing the the stay at home policy now that it's a lower rate of exposure that later on the the uh, second wave of the virus is going to be worse than it would have been otherwise? No, no, no. The uh, I mean, listen, like the stay-at-home thing, you, somebody in your house either has, has COVID or they don't have COVID, and you're going to get exposed or not uh, uh, based on that, whether or not you realize it, and the exposures are relatively the same. Um, sure, like people who develop a mild or, or uh, asymptomatic uh, infection and develop some level of immunity may have some degree of protection for an unclear amount of time, but that's just a lot of uncertainty. And what are your concerns about 
the second wave of this. Once we start relaxing and uh, some of the non-essential businesses start coming back online, um, people start going into work again, um, to what degree are you concerned about the virus getting a significant bump as people start doing that? I think it's real. I think we're we're so caught up nationally talking about a second wave in the fall. People are like not even not even really thinking about a wave that could occur uh, just when we relax measures right now. I mean, it's got, it's going to happen. We're going to have to relax uh, sheltering in place and and you know let people uh, go back, you know, return to work and the life that they aspire to. I think that Governor Newsom's laid out you know some good some good uh, criteria for how we can do that. And, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think that, I think, uh, you know, we, if we relax too early um, on this wave, it's going to come back right away. Um, And we'll just see, because I think some states maybe are um, doing that. Uh, Dr. Dan Kelly, UC San Francisco, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Infectious Disease Specialist. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Jimmy in downtown Los Angeles asks, um, to what extent does the virus uh, affect animals? I seeing a report this morning that a little pug uh, seems to have uh, gotten COVID-19, and we've had reports of uh, some uh, cats that have had it um i mean that's i think that you know so every day we're learning new things um i think that there's certainly the question of where to which animals did this come from to begin with and we think that coronaviruses tend to come from uh bats and that's likely how it was uh first acquired in wuhan china uh in terms of uh Transmission to other animals, were I would say we don't totally we don't totally uh, understand that yet. But I would, but I would say that uh, animals to humans, um, there's no evidence that that's occurring. You know, like a dog transmitting uh, coronavirus to human right now. And I mean, we we just have to think about it as well. If uh, if that happens in other diseases. I think that like when you don't know about uh, COVID, it's helpful to think about flu. And is there any evidence to suggest that dogs, cats are transmitting flu to their owners? And, and uh, I think the short answer is no. So I would say until there's like a lot of evidence pointing towards transmission from, from your pet to you, uh, I wouldn't uh, be too worried. All right. Um, Also wanted to ask about the work you're doing on COVID-19 specifically. Uh, Are you involved uh, with the project in the Mission District in in San Francisco? I'm not, although um, a lot of my friends are, and I think that that's a really uh, exciting project. Personally, I'm I'm involved in uh, some clinical trials as well as uh, a natural history study. So the clinical trial I'm involved in is a uh, national study uh, it's uh, among uh, veterans, and it's using hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, or placebo. It's actually uh, formally launching today. Uh, we'll be we'll be mailing um, drug to those veterans who qualify all around the country uh, to see to see if it works. And it's for mild to moderate cases to try to prevent reduce symptoms and prevent hospitalization. 
the other study that I'm involved in, has to, it is it is at uh, in San Francisco solely. It's looking at the natural history, meaning like trying to ask and understand the science behind uh, viral shedding and transmission all the way from when people are exposed through their acute illness um, and then uh, into the recovery phase. And, and we're looking at a combination of epidemiologic, virology, and immunologic things to try to evaluate amino assays, to try to develop, help develop better monoclonal antibodies to understand really important public health issues such as like how long people are infectious for and uh, what all this viral shedding really means. Um, that's, that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm doing. It keeps me busy, I, but I love it. Well, let's go back to the uh, hydroxychloroquine and z I think you said combination therapy. Is that right? That's correct. For, uh, for VA um, patients who, who have uh, moderate or, or um, more minor uh, symptoms of COVID-19, there's been a lot of concern expressed about side effects from hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, is this low enough dosage that you feel like the side effects are minimized, or how do you factor that in? Yeah, well, we're definitely using a low dosage. I mean, and we had to def- we had to also run this through the FDA before we could move forward. Uh, I think that you know what, what we what we know is is that I mean, in general, medications they can be helpful. They can also they can also harm people. Uh, in particular, individuals who have cardiac conditions who have um, have a history of arrhythmias. But there's a term that we use in medicine called QT prolongation. Um, the hydroxychloroquine and um, azithromycin or the z can uh, can make this condition slightly worse. And in particular, when it is used in combination, uh, you have to be very careful. So there have been some studies, particularly one in Brazil um, and just other studies around the world when they were giving these medications at very high doses or t- in combination or together, um, they they saw many uh, more adverse events than they were expected, and some of these trials had been stopped. We are not using those drugs in combination. We're not okay. high doses, so um, but we we are we do really think we need answers to these questions. This has been a very politicized issue, and and but knowing if these drugs work is important to our society. All right, I want to thank you very much. That's Dr. Dan Kelly, UC San Francisco. Uh, he's professor, assistant professor of epidemiology and infectious disease specialist. It's Air Talk on eighty nine point three KPCC. How is the nation's largest? A public pension fund doing in the wake of the stock market's highly volatile year? We'll find out coming up. This is a segment that we uh, began last week before our entire uh, phone system crashed on us. So we revive it with our guests coming up in just one minute on Air Talk. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Reminder, Governor Gavin Newsom's daily noon news conference comes your way right after Air Talk, as it does every day during this time of COVID-19 here on 89.3 KPECC. 
Well, uh, we began a segment last week, and then our phone system crashed, and thankfully we were able to bring back both of our guests who were going to talk with us about uh, the massive California Public Employees Retirement System. It's uh, the nation's largest public employee pension fund, and uh, after it suffered huge losses back in the financial crisis of 2008-2009, which it lost nearly a quarter of its assets, CalPERS uh, set up some hedge investments to try and protect against future declines in the market. But as reporter Cesare Podkul reports in the Wall Street Journal, CalPERS unwound a number of those hedges before the huge March sell-off of stocks. Cesare, good to have you with us again, and I appreciate your being willing uh, to come on with us once again. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, uh, share with us from the from the beginning here. After Calpers uh, uh, invested in these hedges, what made them decide uh, to let those go and and to move those funds elsewhere? Sure. So, just a quick word about these funds. Uh, these are funds that are designed to basically be kind of like an insurance product in case the market ever has a, an, an epic sell-off. These are funds designed to basically. Uh, hedge against that by delivering you a, a, a big return during that time that would offset uh, that sell-off. So um, these are funds with names like Universa and Longtail Alpha. Um, CalPERS invested in both of these and also had uh, another fund internally that followed a similar strategy. Um, and uh, in October of last year, they decided to basically move away from that as a, as a, a tail risk strategy to hedge against those epic declines. And uh, the main reason for that was just that during when times are good and, you know, these funds uh, aren't, uh, you know, there isn't a, a big payoff from a market slide, you know, you end up using money, you know, end up losing money on these uh, in, insurance products essentially by having these options expire worthless month after month because uh, the markets are placid and there's not a big return. So you end up having that drag and paying fees on that and it's not scalable uh, uh, for a fund of that size. So based on that, based on that, CalPERS decided, you know, this costs a lot over time and it's not really scalable for, for a fund of our size. And they decided to do something else instead to hedge against the big market drawdown like the one we just saw in March. So uh, have you been able to analyze how how CalPERS performed when the market uh, dove in March uh, when it didn't have those hedge investments anymore, that insurance, as you put it, versus how they, they ended up performing? No, I, it's it's tough to say for a fund of that size. And there's obviously a, CalPERS is a diversified, large diversified pension. So it's tough to say exactly what could have been versus what did happen. You know, according to numbers that CalPERS shared with us, uh, the alternate alternative strategies of, that they put in place uh, before uh, the current CIO uh, uh, came on board uh, delivered them a return, or, or rather, it uh, offset losses by about 11 billion compared to what could have been. You know, it's hard to estimate. You know, people we spoke with uh, say that it could have been anywhere in north of like a billion dollars that could have been an immediate payoff in March from these uh, t- tail risk hedge funds that they exited. So that's kind of the numbers you're looking at, but it's that's but it's not quite that simple. There's also the idea that um, you know these are you know paper gains, paper gains versus uh, having these hedges in place and having them pay off. And you know why are you cash in March? That's money you can use right away and reinvest in the mar- in the markets. And it is you know a difference between a risk mitigation strategy 
um, you know, d- doing other things within your portfolio to make sure the portfolio doesn't slide as much versus having, you know, uh, an insurance-like product that gives you a big payoff, you know, kind of right in the middle of the eye of the storm. But overall, you know, in terms of the general trends for the fund, you know, the fund started, Calpers started the year with about $400 billion um, in assets uh, at, at, the, at the trough, it declined about $75 billion to about 330 and it's since recovered now to about uh, $376. All right. We're talking with the Wall Street Journal senior reporter uh, handling financial investigations and special projects for the journal, uh, Cesare Podkul. Also with us, CalPERS Deputy Chief Investment Officer, Dan Bienvenu. Uh, I should just mention, by the way, that I am a CalPERS pensioner uh, back from when I worked at Pasadena City College uh, when KPCC used to be headquartered there. Mr. Bienvenu, thank you very much for joining us uh, and share with us. Um, if you would, what what other sort of risk mitigation CalPERS undertook when it moved out of those special hedge vehicles? All right. Uh, thanks, Larry, and, and thanks for uh, for having me here. Um, yeah, I mean, I would agree with uh, with you know many of the things that uh, Cesare said. I mean, I guess the thing I would add is that the, the really important thing when looking at investment decisions like this is really to take a portfolio context and to think through number one the utility of the specific investor, what that investor needs. But then number two, think of it in terms of the holistic portfolio and not any individual strategy. And I think that is the way that we manage the portfolio as any, as any investor, you know, you know, would and should. Um, the, the things that we put in place um, as a result of our most recent asset liability management uh, work, which was in 2017, uh, we put in place a specific a segment of the portfolio designed to own U.S. Treasuries, long-duration uh, U.S. Treasuries, which tend to be negatively correlated with uh, with equities. And we know that the bulk of the risk in the in the you know in the, the $400 billion, $370 billion portfolio is that equity risk. And then the other thing is that we put in some factor-weighted equity, uh, and that factor-weighted equity is intended to behave like equity. We know that equity is equity, but the idea for this is to have uh, certainly lower drawdowns and hedge against drawdowns. And those are the the strategies that. Uh, Cesare alluded to that uh, that while the you know tail risk mitigation strategies again were viewed in a holistic portfolio context, we decided to to exit those strategies just due to the and 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 by the way, those strategies as I say, every investor has their own utility function. Those strategies are completely appropriate for some investors. We just given our size, given our ability to deploy capital in other ways in a very low cost way. The cost and scalability that Cesare mentioned were the challenges for us, and we decided that these other two segments, putting 10% of the holistic portfolio into long-duration U.S. treasuries and then putting 15% of the portfolio into these sort of factor-weighted equity, allowed us to deploy 25% of the portfolio in things to mitigate drawdown, and that those resulted in uh, you know sort of uh, advantages of something like $11 billion relative to sort of cap-weighted equity and uh, spread segment GFI, uh, fixed income. This is an opportunity for you if you have questions for the Deputy Chief Investment Officer of CalPERS, the Massive Public Employee Retirement Fund. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dan Bienvenu of CalPERS is with us. Also with us from the Wall Street Journal Financial Investigations and Projects team, 
Senior Reporters Cesare Podkul, 866-893-KPECC, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Dan, what what is the um, projection for returns for CalPERS this year, particularly you know given the volatility uh, we've had over the past several weeks? Um, well, you know, that's a question that we keep getting, frankly, Larry, and it's a, and it's a tough one because obviously, you know, none of us has a crystal ball about what the market's going to do for the, you know, for the next couple of months. And as, as Cesare alluded to, um, you know, and what we've all seen in the markets is that it's been a, certainly a very volatile period, um, you know, going into the, uh, the calendar first quarter, our fiscal third quarter, uh, the portfolio is up about, you know, five and a half, six percent, uh, then in the, in, you know, in the quarter from, uh, January 1st until March 31st, we, uh, we suffered, a, you know, again, a paper loss, but, a, but we were down about 9%, a little over 9%. And then since then, we've snapped back, you know, since that's March 23rd bottom, but even since March uh, 31st, we've snapped back materially and the portfolio is right around flat for the fiscal year right now. Um, you know, there's, there's still a couple of months and, you know, it's a really important to underscore that, uh, you know, ours is a very long uh, investment horizon. You know, you're, you're one of our... Uh, uh, beneficiaries, which is nice to know, but certainly we're retiring <laughs> on behalf of, uh, you know, almost 2 million beneficiaries out there. And we're doing that over a multi-generational time horizon. So, you know, we try not to get caught up in, uh, you know, in short-term uh, market movements. We take a long horizon, manage the portfolio uh, in, you know, what we believe to be a prudent way to to pay those beneficiaries, whether it's yourself or myself when the time comes or the you know, 19-year-old police officer that's just joining the force. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Dan, also about um, sort of um, how how um, CalPERS invests. Can you give a general percentage of, of what is in stocks versus in um, bonds and other instruments, other investments? Yeah, absolutely. And all of this is public on our website, but we have approximately half of the portfolio, 50% of the portfolio in equities. And again, that's broken down between being about two thirds of that 50% is in capital weighted equities. And then about a third uh, is in this sort of factor weighted equity. Then we have uh, almost 30%. I think it's about 28% of the portfolio invested in fixed income. So that's a global fixed income that includes you know, obviously this 10% that's U.S. Treasuries, but then mortgages, uh, corporates, uh, you know, international sovereigns, et cetera. Uh, then about 12% of the portfolio is invested in real assets. And the real assets includes both real estate and then also infrastructure assets. And then finally, about uh, 8% of the portfolio is invested in private equity. So it's a similar exposure to the public equity investments, though done through, uh, you know, obviously uh, limited partnerships and uh, co-investments and other vehicles that are not publicly traded. Teddy in Venice, you're on AirTalk. Hey, wondering about that last 8% invested in private equity and how you all think about uh, performance of, of the private equity markets in the years to come. Dan Bienvenue. Yes, happy to. Uh, certainly, we uh, believe that private markets are one of the real opportunities we have. Now, we also obviously know that the sort of dispersion of returns uh, in the private markets is much greater than in the public markets. And so we need to make sure that we're, uh, you know, in the best investments. But certainly, you know, ours is we have a you know 7% return assumption on the whole portfolio. Uh, we think that's achievable, but it's a challenge, certainly. And so because of uh, because of the challenges there, we, we believe that some of the better opportunities are in the pi- private markets, both private equity and private debt. Teddy, thanks. Ron in West Hills, you're on AirTalk. Thank you, Larry. I'm wondering what your guests 
think is the likelihood, assuming that they're willing to offer an opinion, that the state, which is already looking at uh, sort of unsustainable pension costs, what is the likelihood that pensions will finally be reduced? Dan, you want to weigh in on on, on that? Um, um, I don't know if it's the third rail, but uh, certainly a tough issue for the state. Yeah, you know, frankly, that's a policy issue and one that is, you know, as an organization like CalPERS, we try to stay out of the policy issues. We try to, you know, be an honest broker of information, but then otherwise, um, you know, do the job that we've been entrusted to do, which is, uh, you know, ensure retirement, ensure health benefits, uh, ensure good customer service and do that over a, over a long horizon. Uh, we, you know, we did have, uh, the, you know, the PEPRA legislation that happened a few years back and that did reduce benefits. Um, but as I say, for, you know, that too was, a, you know, again, that was a policy issue that's carried by the policymakers. And for us, we'll, um, we'll do what we're tasked to do in the best way we can. All right. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it, Ron. Uh, and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for talking with us uh, about uh, CalPERS. Uh, Cesar, you want to weigh in just briefly on that issue of um, the vulnerability of pensions, given the financial uh, state that not just California, but, you know, so much of the country's facing? I mean, it really depends. It's on a state-by-state basis. You know, constitutional protections for uh, pensions vary by state. Some are stronger, some are weaker. But in general, I mean, it's something that, as Dan mentioned, it's a policy issue for lawmakers. So it depends, you know, really on, on the politics of each state and how much, you know, willingness there is uh, among lawmakers to do anything to diminish pensions and then go through any resulting court battles. Yeah, I was going to say, and for the courts, uh, that's where any move like that would ultimately end up. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That's Cesare Podkul, a senior reporter, Wall Street Journal Financial Investigations, Dan Bienvenu, CalPERS Deputy Chief Investment Officer. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up, we're going to talk about an allegation of sexual assault against presumptive Democratic nominees. Joe Biden and ask Democratic listeners to air talk uh, what weight you give that. Is that going to factor into your vote? And do you think it will factor in the votes of other Democrats like yourself? 866-893-KPCC. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Next hour on Air Talk, we'll ask you about your favorite concert that you've seen online. There have been mega productions such as Lady Gaga's recently curated One World series of performances with headline acts. And then there have been ones with musicians who have much smaller followings who've done intimate concerts online. We're going to have you call in next hour and talk about some of your favorite performances and why they touched you so much. But first, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden was accused of sexual assault last month by a former junior staffer in his Senate office. The allegation Tara Reid made in March expanded on her earlier claim that the then-senator sexually harassed her and that she was fired for complaining. Reid's expanded claim is that Biden reached under her clothes and digitally penetrated her without consent. She alleges the incident occurred in 1993. In recent days, a recording has surfaced of a woman Reed says is her mother calling in to Larry King's CNN show in 1993. 
The woman tells King, I'm wondering what a staffer would do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. The only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Now, in an interview with Business Insider published yesterday, Reed's former next-door neighbor said Reed told her in the mid-90s that Biden had committed the act that Reed is now publicly alleging. The allegation has left high-profile Democrats in a tough spot. Many of them have claimed women alleging sexual misconduct should not just be heard, but that their claims should be believed. Nevertheless, there's significant skepticism about Reed's account, with Biden's senior staffers at the time denying Reed ever approached them with a complaint about the senator. Skeptics also claim Reed's support for Bernie Sanders and previous words of praise for Vladimir Putin call her motives into question. I'd like to hear what Democratic AirTalk listeners think about whether this allegation, if nothing further reinforces or undermines the claim, will it affect Democratic turnout or Democratic support for the presumptive nominee. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We're joined by Vox senior reporter covering gender, Anna North, who's been writing about this uh, allegation. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's uh, start, first of all, with with the difficult spot. This is put in, uh, you know, some Democrats and, and people in the Me Too movement. Can you elaborate a bit about how um, this debate is, has unfolded there? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a, this is a really complicated issue for, um, for a lot of voters, for a lot of folks in the Democratic Party, because on the one hand— um, you know, you have this allegation against Biden. Um, it comes, as you mentioned, on the heels of a lot of allegations of sort of inappropriate touching or behavior that made women uncomfortable. But now, you know, comes this real allegation of sexual assault, which I think for a lot of people um, puts things in almost a different category. Um, but then at the same time, Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee. And if he goes up against President Trump, of course, President Trump has been accused of sexual misconduct by more than 20 women. So it's a very difficult position that it puts any voter in. Um, if things go as we expect them to go, they may not have a choice of someone who has not been accused of sexual misconduct in November. Uh, we're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Anna, um, aside from Bernie Sanders supporters, who, who some of whom are calling for Biden to withdraw and for Sanders to be the nominee, um, aside from those firmly in the Vermont senators camp, are there others who are at all talking about that they think that um, the allegation in and of itself should disqualify Biden and, and that if not Sanders, there should be someone else. Um, well, you know, Tara Reid has certainly talked about this herself um, and has called out some folks who have been supportive of Biden. Um, and I do think I've started to see more questions around the nomination just bubbling up on social media and elsewhere over the last few days. I think, you know, for a long time, this issue didn't necessarily receive a lot of coverage. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, 
you know, one is, is politics and another is just that we're in the midst of a pandemic and people's attention is elsewhere. Um, but, you know, I think I have started to see a lot more questions about Biden and about the nomination process. And I don't think we know how this is going to play out. All right. Let's talk with Nancy in Westwood. Uh, Nancy, I understand um, you say you were a staffer for Biden back in this time period. Yes, I worked for him from 1992 to 1994 when I was um, 22, 24 years old. Very good. And and uh, I understand you're an attorney today? Yes, I'm currently actually a sexual harassment attorney working on um, defending uh, women and also um, working with employers and investigating claims of sexual harassment. So how are you weighing this this allegation from Ms. Reed? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it both from a personal perspective as someone who has worked with the senator um, intimately, I worked with him on the Violence Against Women Act. And, you know, so my own personal experience, and I'm also looking at it as an investigator on, on factors that I would consider in assessing someone's credibility. Although I, I do want to make clear I'm not making uh, findings determination as to her claims. Okay. And and so what are the things, so we have the case where uh, Ms. Reed says that that was her mother calling in to Larry King Live, um, using that to um, to back up that she told people at the time, uh, including the former next door neighbor, um, what she says happened to her. How much weight do you give that? So, you know, in assessing a claim, you do look for shout out witnesses. You look for contemporaneous witnesses who told, you know, said that at the time. But you have to also evaluate their credibility and why this has taken so long to come out. You look for consistency in the story. Has the story changed over time? Um, you know, this is the most vetted man in human history, I think. Right. <laughs> but Mr. Um, I keep calling him Senator Vice President Biden you know, served for eight years in the White House. He ran seven Senate campaigns. I mean, the guy's been in politics for 40 years and there hasn't ever been one hint of sexually um, any kind of sexual assault. Uh, I understand the claims about his touching and, and how those have made women feel uncomfortable. Um, but I think that I know that the claim of, of what she's making is a whole other order from, you know, rubbing someone's shoulders or touching their neck. This is this is a this is a violent, in some ways, sexual assault that they're making. And there's never been any any hint of that with this this um, this man. And I can speak personally as all of us who used to hang out together, worked late nights, went out drinking after work. Never any discussion, any discussion that he was one of the bad guys in the Senate, that he was one of the men who was looking to uh, meet interns and and um, be inappropriate with them, never at all. He was all right. every night on that train to see his, his young sons who lost their mother and sister. Nancy, I appreciate you sharing your experience, both as a former staffer of the then senator uh, and also your legal expertise as an attorney who works on sexual harassment cases. That's Nancy in Westwood. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Jasmine in Inglewood, you're on AirTalk. Um, how do you how do you weigh this uh, or do you consider it in your vote in November? It's absolutely something that I'm considering. I think it's something that Biden needs to speak to. And it's been extremely frustrating to see establishment Democrats, uh, you know, not hold hold him accountable to speaking to to these allegations in the same way that we're so good about holding Trump accountable. So it's been extremely frustrating. I think he needs to speak to it. I want to hear him address these things more directly, um, and, and I want to know more.
You know, Jasmine, uh, the the downside for him, though, is if the incident didn't occur, if 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 it's an absolutely incorrect account, what does he say beyond the fact there no such thing happened? I mean, how how does he defend the negative, so to speak, to try and prove something that, you know, if it didn't happen, didn't happen? I think we can make the same argument if he's not speaking to it. I I want to hear from him. If he's so confident that it didn't take place, I want to hear more from him. Um, And I think that we need to learn a little bit more about what took place in the past. So um, I'm still unenthusiastically voting for him, but this is definitely something that I feel that I need to to hear more about and, and he needs to speak to. If he really is serious about being the a Democratic contender for for president, then he needs to. He has a responsibility. Jasmine and Inglewood, thank you for your call. 866-893-KPECC. Also with me from Vox, senior reporter covering gender and has been writing about the allegation against then-Senator Biden, Anna North, with us. We're at 866-893-KPECC. My question for you is if you're a Democratic voter, how does this factor in? And I also wonder how it factors in if you're someone who has supported Bernie Sanders versus someone who's supportive of Biden or another moderate candidate all the way along. Do you look at it differently based on that uh, political uh, alignment? 866-893-KPCC. We'll be back in one minute on Air Talk. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about the allegation of sexual assault against Joe Biden, an allegation that was made last month by uh, a former uh, junior staffer for the then senator's office back in the mid 1990s, Tara Reid. Uh, she had claimed last year when uh, there were several women who had complained about Joe Biden uh, hugging or touching them in ways that they felt was inappropriate. There was no allegation of of sexual assault. But then the claim that Ms. Reid made was expanded to uh, a sexual assault allegation last month. We're talking about how Democrats are viewing that and whether the fact that there's an allegation should exclude Joe Biden's candidacy. Would it make um, some Democrats less likely to turn out and vote for him? Or would they just look um, compared to the multiple allegations of sexual assault against President Trump? Would they just look at it as choosing between those two and not see it as being uh, excluding for a Democratic candidate? We're at 866-893-KPCC. David, in Woodland Hills, I understand you're an attorney. What's your perspective? I am, Larry, and I was struck by a previous caller, apparently also an attorney, because I think it illustrates that uh, there are conscious or subconscious agendas, regardless of one's background. To say that, um, for example, that there are factors that would diminish this person's credibility, all of that was as or more true in the case of the allegations against Kavanaugh. I certainly don't know whether those were valid allegations or not, but I know that many of the details were found to be um, not only impossible, but somewhat bizarre. So, again, I do think this breaks down on 
political lines. And then, again, having no idea what where the truth lies in this thing, to say that Joe Biden has a spotless record, I think anyone who has studied him, whether they're a fan or not, there's been acknowledged plagiarism by Biden, acknowledged misstatements. Uh, yeah, OK. But 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 David, uh, I think they're talking about sexual assault allegations explicitly. So you're an attorney. Do you think people really um, have the ability to make a conclusion about an allegation? I guess for me, when I look at either the case of Brett Kavanaugh or an allegation like this against Joe Biden, I just feel like it's impossible for me to have a conclusion because there's just there's there's no way for me with the lack of evidence in both of these cases to come to a conclusion. So, I mean, are, are you saying that people just with the dearth of information should come to some sort of determination? I agree with you. And that's why, for example, the law recognizes statutes of limitations typically. And that is all the more reason why I would say that where this will break down, as unfortunately everything else does, is ultimately along political lines. So okay. uh, people that would be very uh, reluctant to draw a conclusion with someone of a similar political orientation will have no difficulty when it's an opponent, unfortunately. David, I appreciate it. 866-893-KPCC, Anna North uh, of Vox. Um, this is, is kind of an unusual um sort of alliance here, isn't it, in, in those that are um, are playing up this story. It's uh, supporters of President Trump and supporters of Bernie Sanders. Um, well, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure exactly how, you know, how an alliance is playing out or if there is an alliance there. I know that, um, you know, certainly um, some more progressive media outlets were some of the first to report on this in detail. Um, and, you know, certainly some supporters of Sanders and supporters of Trump on social media have been have been tweeting about it. Um, you know, I do think um, there have been concerns um, throughout um, as soon as the story became public, concerns that it would help President Trump or concerns that, you know, it could divide Democrats and help President Trump in that way. Um, I think those concerns are going to persist. And it's just a really difficult it's a really difficult time for the Democratic Party and this is a difficult story for them because, um, you know, I think many people agree that this is an important issue that needs to be looked at. And at the same time, it appears that Biden will be the nominee. So anything to upend that is going to create a serious issue for the election. Alan in South Pasadena said uh, on the caller, um, I think it was Jasmine in Inglewood who said she wanted to hear directly from Biden. Uh, Alan says he's denied the allegations. Has um has uh, Vice President Biden himself denied this? I know his campaign put out a lengthy statement um, denying it, but has he has he personally spoke on this? So yes, the campaign has denied it, um, and they've also made available um, some folks who uh, you know, like like Nancy, who worked with him, um, who who have just as she said, said that they never heard of anything like this and, and would say he was a completely different person than the one that Tara described, um, that Tara Reid described. Um, I, I do think that um, uh, former Vice President Biden has addressed other allegations uh, in person in the past. So when women were coming forward about things like inappropriate touching, he recorded a video statement where he talked about 
changing boundaries and uh, how he was going to change his own behavior. He hasn't done something like that here. And so I, I think it sounds like maybe something like that might be what Jasmine's asking for. It may be that more and more voters need something like that and need to see him talk about this personally. Is there anything that you're seeing that would make those that hold the more extreme view on this issue that any person who makes an allegation should just be believed right off the top. Is this, um, does this seem to be making some of those folks rethink that idea? Yeah, I think it's sort of a misconception that a lot of people think that um, that no one can be questioned or that there's no due diligence done. I, I think everyone who's, who's serious about sexual misconduct during this time knows that, um, you know, it's okay to follow up and that it's okay to, to look into things like corroborating evidence and, and who told who at the time. Um, you know, I will say that there are aspects of this that have made people uncomfortable and Reed herself has acknowledged that specifically her writings about Russia um, and praise of Vladimir Putin. I think um, certainly that has given folks pause perhaps more, um, you know, than in other cases of sexual misconduct where things like that weren't present. Um, so that's certainly a complicating factor. All right. Let me uh, briefly share another comment here. James in Culver City says, I'm a young Democrat, survivor of assault. I think it would be morally reprehensible for Democrats to ignore what Ms. Reed has to say. And James in Newport Beach says this is something I take very seriously and would turn my view against Biden, the same as it would for Trump or Kavanaugh. So those are examples of individuals who believe the allegation up front. Thanks so much for joining us. Anna North, we appreciate it. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I so appreciate your being with us. Uh, even if you're making an appointment to join us for these two hours every day or whether you keep KPCC on throughout the day on your smart speaker at home or on your radio or listening to the app on your phone. Just want to uh, remind you that Film Week is coming up this Friday at 11 o'clock, but you can listen to last week's Film Week and all the reviews of things now streaming for your viewing pleasure by uh, downloading the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts or by visiting kpcc.org. Joining me now is KPCC politics reporter Libby Dankman. It's the Dankman Report, and we have a number of things on our agenda this morning. Good morning, Libby. Good morning, Larry. Let's start first with California preparing to potentially do the November general election all vote by mail. Um, is there is there a uh, deadline for when they have to make that decision? Uh, sooner rather than later, Larry. We don't have a final deadline. Each county really has its own system for printing ballots and making sure that each voter, if they uh, do move to this system, would receive a ballot in the mail. Funny enough, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors is meeting as we speak. I just got off listening to that uh, teleconferencing meeting, and they are voting today on a measure that would expand vote by mail to every registered voter in the county. So that's something that we didn't see for the March 3rd primary. Of course, you remember some of the long lines that occurred at those vote centers that were a new consolidated model from the old neighborhood polling places. And uh, the county supervisors were upset about that afterwards. They had asked the uh, county registrar to look into those long lines. 
And then uh, a few days later, the Secretary of State also asked for the county registrar to look at sending ballots to everyone. Well, now the virus has hit. And the reality of the situation is that safety is uh, becoming paramount in this consideration. And the supervisors are deciding to move forward and expanding the vote by mail option. And that doesn't necessarily mean there would not be vote centers, right? They would make this decision before that decision as to whether there would be places to go vote? Correct. Under state law right now, they would have to be vote centers. And even in the special election, for example, that's happening in North L.A. County on May 12th, the congressional election in the 25th district to replace Katie Hill, that will include vote centers. There will be uh, nine vote centers open in L.A. County, uh, a few two or three open in Ventura County. So although the governor had issued an executive order to expand vote by mail, to every voter in that special election, there is still going to be an option to go in person and there will be drop-off centers for uh, vote-by-mail ballots if people want to drop them off in a box in person. Um, However, there's a special election for a state Senate seat in Riverside coming up and that uh, election currently, Riverside County has decided not to have in-person voting available because of health concerns. So thus far, it really has been up to the county. Um, something that would happen at the state level would likely have to come from a Gavin Newsom executive order. All right. And and so is that something it's thought that once the legislature reconvenes, I think it's next month, right, that they are supposed to return in some form, um, that they could take that up? Yeah, the legislature is supposed to be back on Monday, although I don't think they're going to be on the floor right away. Um, There's going to be a difference of opinion between the state Senate and the assembly. The Senate lawyers have decided that it is legal under the state constitution to hold uh, remote voting in a state of emergency, while the assembly says no. Nope, it's not okay. So there's going to have to be, um, you know, measures in place to protect the safety of assembly members when they come back. Um, again, Gavin Newsom could just go ahead as he has been doing in uh, the past weeks and and about a, the last month and a half, issuing executive orders related to elections. But the uh, legislature could also step up and decide to change the law. Uh, and make it possible for uh, counties to reduce the in-person voting component because of uh, the situation that we're facing with the virus. However, Larry, a a lot of folks say if you reduce those in-person voting places, what you're going going to get is more people showing up at fewer centers, and that doesn't help with physical distancing and uh, safety measures like, like sanitization for the poll workers. So that's another thing that they have to consider. Yeah, it could make long lines down the street as everybody in line has to distances from the person uh, behind and in front. Uh, KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman is with us. One of the concerns I know about doing uh, all vote-by-mail elections has been uh, the difficulty of some of the registrars keeping their um, registers uh, accurate, that there have been a lot of inaccuracies, people registered multiple times, dead people still being registered uh, to vote. Is uh, Are the Southern California counties concurrently looking at efforts to improve the quality of their voter rolls? 
And that's something that I heard come up on a conference call recently. I was um, listening to Amy Klobuchar and Ron Wyden and uh, several senators who are looking at the safety of elections for November. And they convened this call with uh, secretaries of state from across the country, including Republican secretaries of state. And several of them um, did express concern that voter rolls were out of date and even that people who you know moved recently wouldn't be able to get their uh, ballot in the mail effectively. Now, that's not something that Alex Padilla, the Secretary of State in California, prioritizes. He really falls on the side of expanding the franchise, expanding opportunities to vote, and um, he, he minimizes the impact of old voter rolls or issues like uh, fraud that President Trump has has brought up. Of course, we did see some vote by mail fraud occurring in a North Carolina congressional race uh, in 2018 that was later overturned. But uh, Padilla would say issues of fraud are so rare. And really, the, the most pressing concern is expanding people's opportunities to vote and making sure that it's easy for Californians to vote. I have not heard that L.A. County is looking at um, cleaning up its voter rolls. I will uh, check again with them because I think that's an issue that comes up a lot when we talk about moving uh, almost fully to vote by mail. Uh, another issue, and you've certainly reported this, is... Um, um, allegations of so-called ballot harvesting, where you have uh, political activists who go out and collect large groups of ballots. Um, and the allegation is that that, uh, you know, there's a fine line between that and, and essentially commandeering votes. And, you know, what does the law say about that? Uh, it is legal. I mean, the, the term ballot harvesting is somewhat pejorative. It, it sounds like a nefarious act. But in California, it's legal for you to sign over your ballot and hand it over to somebody for them to turn it in. Now, of course, it's not legal for that person to manipulate you or in some way um, force you to vote a certain way or even... Uh, change your ballot and change your vote later. But that's something that we saw quite effectively done by Democrats in Orange County in uh, 2018, when the blue wave ended up sweeping a lot of longtime Republicans and Republican stronghold seats in the House um, and, and flipping those over to Democratic seats. That's something that we've heard in 2020 Republican activists saying we need to be more organized about this and actually use some of the same tactics that were happening in 2018. Ballot harvesting is the term, but again, it's it's legal, Larry, in California. And so when uh, folks use it in a nefarious way, it's really talking about when, you know, there would be some type of manipulation or... Um, or, in bulk, uh, I know, think is the implication that it's not just you're taking your grandmother or grandfather's you know ballot down for them, but you've got people going through neighborhoods and uh, you know amassing large quantities uh, of ballots from different people that they've essentially told them how they should fill it out and how they should sign it. I think that's really what the concern has been, right? Right. And that that second part that you said, people telling people how to vote, that is not something that, uh, you know, a registrar or the secretary of state would say is OK. But groups collecting ballots for people and, and turning them in. There was, a, for example, um, a, a pastor who was collecting ballots 
recently for a special election in Orange County. Things like that are legal in California. You can sign over your ballot to anyone that you decide is is okay to turn in your ballot. So again, it's something that is used by political operatives for their own purposes. It has gained, you know, dubious uh, uh a reputation over time because of incidents like the North Carolina election. But right now in California, it is legal to do so. So, um, and, and there hasn't been talk about outlong yeah. more. So there's been talk about having uh, political parties step up their game in that area. JSK writes on the page, of course, ballot harvesting is legal because Democrats made it legal. Compare that to the old law. It, is that a new law, Libby, the, the ability to collect ballots on behalf of others? It has been around for a few years, and I don't know exactly when the law changed. I'll have to get back to you on that. Um, and, you know, of course, in California, Democrats control the legislature, so they would have been the ones that would have changed the law. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's something that was, again, used to great effect in 2018 and is something that I've heard Republican activists say we really need to improve this time around in order to gain some of those seats back. We're talking with KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman. If you have politics questions for her, we're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. As California considers moving to an all-vote-by-mail November general election, Libby, what are other states considering, and are any of them considering going to online elections? There is actually, you heard from NPR's Miles Parks this morning, a report about West Virginia and one other state that are looking at options for people who are disabled to turn their ballots in online. Currently, there's a way for folks who need special accommodations to print out a ballot so that they can use their own accessibility device in order to uh, fill out the ballot. That is possible in California. But what Miles is reporting on is a new effort that would let them also turn in a ballot online. Now, that's highly controversial. That is not something that's supported by the vast majority of election security experts, of uh, election officials. But it's something that people are kind of dipping their toes in here and there, this idea that we would move to an online service. Um, There's a lot of states that are looking at options like expanding no fault uh, uh, vote by mail, no excuse vote by mail. A lot of states still require you to have a reason like, hey, I'm going to be out of state visiting my aunt when the election happens. And so I need an absentee ballot. There are states that are saying, you know, we are we're holding firm and we are not going to move forward with that. Again, the secretaries of state that were on the call that I uh, participated in, um, you know, some of them are Republicans and they say that we've used vote by mail very effectively, like the Washington state uh, secretary of state uh, who says that, you know, this has been great for Washington and making sure that older people, people in rural areas have access to the vote. So um, while the president has somewhat recently made it a partisan issue, vote by mail expansion, there are Republicans who say, for example, in Florida, where there's a larger older population, that could actually benefit them in that state. All right. KPCC's Libby Dankman, senior politics reporter with us. Uh, You were mentioning earlier about Governor Newsom and, and with his executive orders, you know, with the legislature not convening in Sacramento, the governor has 
really been the state government in terms of response to COVID-19. And I can't recall, certainly in my decades of covering state politics, anything comparable for this period of time where a governor is just pretty much by himself been running the show. Um, has there been any sort of um, negative response that you've encountered from members of the legislature to this? Well, I think you're seeing members of the legislature champing at the bit to get back to work. I think that a lot of folks are trying to show that they are working for their constituents. They're holding town halls, digital town halls. They're doing things in the community. But it's really hard to say that you are effectively representing your constituents unless you are in Sacramento passing legislation. And meanwhile, you see the governor on television every day giving these briefings and really um, stepping up on a national stage with his coalition with the Washington and Oregon governors and responding to the president, um, even making deals internationally to buy masks at large quantities and other PPE equipment. Um, The legislature will be back next week. Like I mentioned, it'll be a question mark about how they'll be able to pass legislation when one of the houses will likely be voting at a distance. But you do see this moment, you know, from the state level down to the city level with uh, Eric Garcetti, the mayor here, stepping up and issuing a number of emergency ordinances under his powers as mayor. These strong executives stepping forward and kind of becoming the focal points of responding to disasters. Uh, So true. Uh, The amount of of interaction with the public we've had from Mayor Garcetti, from Governor Newsom, from President Trump each day, it's it's absolutely extraordinary. Libby, before I let you go, we need to talk about the Los Angeles County uh, budget proposal for fiscal 2021. L.A. County's uh, chief uh, executive officer uh, came out with a budget that is almost six hundred million dollars short of the current year's budget. Of course, it's very difficult to predict what revenue is going to be, you know, six to nine months from now, given we're right in the midst of of COVID-19 and a shutdown economy. But um, are there cuts that are contemplated here? There are absolutely cuts contemplated for next fiscal year, but the budget that Sachi Hamai came out with yesterday does not include cuts that would reach uh, to the point of covering this $1 billion shortfall that's expected in the next fiscal year. The budget that she released yesterday was largely written before the coronavirus struck the region and changed the picture in terms of local government and and revenue and and the tax base. So what Saji Hamai was announcing yesterday was this process of getting the budget for next year to match the gigantic revenue shortfall that they're facing, and also the way that they have bridged this $1.3 billion shortfall for the current fiscal year that ends June 30th. So that is, uh, you know, been bridged largely through the rainy day fund. They did have a cash balance expected in the county that was supposed to be over a billion dollars, and that has been totally slashed down to just about $200 million. And Sachi Hamai was speaking just a few minutes ago in front of the county supervisors saying $200 million cash balance at the end of a fiscal year for a county of our size is extremely slim. It is very narrow margin. So she is going to have to come back in June uh, with a revised budget and 
unless the county gets major federal help, there's going to be uh, these large cuts to each department, similar to what we saw at the city level. Now, the county says that they would like to avoid furloughs and layoffs, but again, Catherine Barger, the chair of the County Board of Supervisors, said yesterday they could be looking at reductions of 15 or 20 percent overall to the county budget due to this tax revenue shortfall. It's hard to see how they would reach uh, to fill that gigantic budget gap without some type of um, personnel measures, as well as budget cuts across departments. All right. Very, very difficult uh, news and certainly concerning for public employees, uh, whether you're talking the county, city or state level. Libby, great to talk with you this morning. Thank you so much and stay well. Thanks, Larry. You too. KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman with us on Air Talk. Well, coming up, we'll talk about all the musicians who've been giving concerts from their homes, uh, from their studios, and streaming them around the world. They are headline artists, um, many of whom took part in the curated One World concert that Lady Gaga put together uh, that aired a few days ago or much smaller scale, where people have uh, a core of fans, maybe a few hundred at a time, have tuned in for a streaming concert. We'll talk about what's your favorite concert that you've seen during this lockdown period. We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Your favorite online musical performance uh, from uh, the past few weeks. We'll be back in just a minute on Air Talk. Jagger and the Rolling Stones performing the One World Together at Home concert curated by Lady Gaga, which aired on all major networks just about a week and a half ago. It was a benefit concert for victims of COVID-19. It might have been the splashiest of all the online concerts that we've had since the beginning of the stay-at-home order, but it's one of many, many that have taken place. Some of them have been long builds of multiple performers uh, to give uh, a kind of festival feel. Others are just a a single performer uh, from his or her house uh, performing in front of a small group of fans, maybe just several hundred, enjoying the performance. So my question for you is, of 
any of these concerts specifically produced during this stay-at-home time of COVID-19. I'm not talking about vintage videos on YouTube, but ones that were specifically uh, presented from home during this time of COVID-19. What performance really stood out to you? 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. You can also post on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can tweet at AirTalk or message us on the AirTalk Facebook page. With me, Senior Director of Live Music Coverage at Billboard, Dave Brooks, who's also the founder of Amplify Media, which covered the music and live entertainment industry. Dave, it's good to have you with us again on AirTalk. Thanks, Larry. I'm glad to be back. So uh, what for you has been one of the highlights of these special online concerts? Well, I have a few for you. Um, you know, uh, we did um, the, one of the first ones that happened on St. Patrick's Day was the Dropkick Murphys. And I mean, and they played from a soundstage in Boston and it was like a full on um, concert, you know, minus the fans. You know, Billboard, um, we had Hozier, you know, the Irish singer, um, perform, you know, on the day that um, Bill Withers uh, passed away. And, um, you know, he played several um, Bill Withers covers. It was incredible. Um, and then, you know, John Krasinski, the comedian from um, The Office um, and um, uh, the show on and the show on Amazon, he has something called Some Good News. And on the second episode, probably like two weeks back, he had the entire cast of Hamilton play kind of the opening number from that musical on Zoom, and I'm a huge Hamilton fan, and so I loved that. That's probably, that's probably my my top one. And um, there have been obviously tech challenges along the way, and making sure that performances coming from multiple locations are synced. Have you been surprised how well that that's worked, even with uh, the potential uh, lag time? Yeah, I have been um, surprised. You know, some of the technology out there is pretty impressive, um, you know, in terms of being able to kind of mix these um, things in real time. But, you know, I'll also say if if an artist, no matter who it is, is like shooting a, a video from their home, um, I think fans kind of expect glitches here and there. And, you know, I don't, I, I think if they handle it like in a, in a fun way, nobody really might. It, it's, it's kind of this moment we're all in together right now, you know? All right. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. That huge multi-hour um, bill uh, for the One World concert that Gaga curated, that was a benefit concert. But are there ways, Dave, that musicians are, are able to monetize these online concerts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there are some services that that you know charge um, a small ticket price for fans, or they can contribute. You know, like um, a tip jar. But I think artists are also kind of cognizant that you know the fans are really having a hard time too right now. It's kind of this recession um, kind of grips the, the world. So I think you're seeing some sponsors and consumer brands who are stepping up with sponsorships to underwrite some of these efforts. And, you know, um, bands are selling a lot of merch to do these things, and that's that's great for fans because they actually get something. You know, that Dropkick Murphy show I told you about on uh, St. Patrick's Day, they, they created a shirt where the venue said, your living room, and, and they sold like 8,000 <laughs> of the shirts. Wow. 
All right. Uh, Dave Brooks of Billboard with us, Senior Director of Live Music Coverage. Lee, uh, in Canoga Park, you're an opera fan, I understand. What did you just see that, that impressed you? Yes, the Metropolitan Opera in New York did a four-hour gala with singers from all over the world. Um, they sang from their own homes via Skype. How was the quality, uh, the sound quality of of the opera singers? I'm wondering, because their voices are so big, I wonder if um, they particularly um, held up well in home concerts. For the most part, they did. There were there were some of them the the um, voices weren't so good. It worked better when they had live accompaniment. Some of them had pianists with them in their homes, um, and that worked better. Some of them used their iPods and and used um, recorded music to do their singing. All right, Lee, thanks so much. 866-893-KPECC. Judith posted on the AirTalk Facebook page, I love the concerts at home by Camerata Pacifica. And in the interest of full disclosure, she writes, I've played on two of them. Good for you, Judith. They're available on Facebook and YouTube. Judith, thanks so much. Uh, John posted on the AirTalk Facebook page, Paul Simon's simple performance of his song, America, performed from somewhere in his home, brought me to tears, an emotional song for this time in our current situation. That's John. John, thank you so much. 866-893-KPECC. Dave, have you been surprised by how many legacy artists and huge names have so quickly taken to performing free from home? You know, I I, I, I'm, I was at first, but... Um... But, you know, it became so popular so fast. It's one of those things, like, in the music industry, like a lot of kind of entertainment businesses where nobody, you know, wants to be first, but everybody wants to be second, right? And I think after the, um, the Rolling Stones play and the kind of, like, you know, um, where they, they, they show themselves from each person's home, they play, you can't as good as you want. I think that, I mean, once the Stones do it, um, you know, who doesn't want to do it? All right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We have Krish in Playa Vista. Krish, your favorite uh, streaming performance so far? My favorite streaming performance was Julia Cole. She's a small artist out of Nashville. And uh, I'm a recording engineer and I work with the Rolling Stones. Uh, I won a Grammy with them Great. Wow. years ago. And, uh, you know, musicians are really negatively affected by this. They were already on the brink. And all these smaller artists are having a real tough time. So supporting streams is very important. Uh, I have a company. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it on there, but we, we do sponsorship for, for young artists with forward thinking. You do. Okay. And, and so you're still identifying artists to support now? We're doing it more than ever now, and brands are stepping up. Uh, and it's, 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 it's amazing to see how brands are helping out with artists because they have no other place to go. Krish, I, I appreciate it. So, Dave, just like you're saying, there are um, advertisers finding a way in. Yeah, exactly. And it's more of a direct connection with the fans of um, the artists. You know, it's, 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 advertisers, I think, are finding that it, it may be a better use of the money to a specific group than kind of blanketing a television station. 
All right. Clint tweets at AirTalk, best online performance I've seen in this strange period was Miley Cyrus singing Wish You Were Here on SNL. Moved us to tears. So somber and warm. I've rewatched it a few nights in a row now. That's Clint tweeting at AirTalk. Chris, thank you for your call. Rob in Pasadena. Uh, what streamed performance during this stay-at-home period most affected you? Well, I just grew up being a huge, huge Queen fan, and Brian May of Queen is coming on every other day, every every couple days, and playing a Queen song from his living room and showing musicians how to play it. Wow. That was a lot of different musicians that are just absolutely showing us, here how I, I play the iconic song. And it's just blown me away. You know, Brian May is such a brilliant person. He's got a doctorate, and he's just an amazing man. So it's just blown me away. So it, it sounds like it's com- combined performance and instruction? Exactly. And, you know, he's such a kind man, and so it's just brilliant, and I just love it. Rob, that's terrific. Thank you so much. Brian May of Queen, 866-893-KPECC. The AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can post on Facebook, as Robert did. Uh, He says the ska punk band Goldfinger has had its members individually playing their instruments from quarantine and posting a song here and there. Um, and uh, so he's a big fan of those. And our producer, Matt, said he also saw a couple of these and said they're awesome. Uh, Goldfinger, best known for Superman, prominently featured in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater classic video game. 866-893-KPECC. Frank in Arcadia. Frank, you were involved in an at-home musical comedy production, is that right? Uh, that's right, Larry. I, I was doing a, a, a version of my show, An Evening with Groucho, which I have performed all over the world for the last 30 years. And uh, a lot of the, my performances and performing arts centers had been canceled. I thought this would be a great way to stay in touch with patrons around the world. And I thought we'd have a few hundred uh, you know, viewing. It ended up being like about 20,000 people. And it was such a thrill to share the humor. People want to laugh right now, and I was able to sing those crazy Marx Brothers songs that I've done forever, like Lydia the Tattooed Lady, and <laughs> it was just it was just it was a hoot and a lot of storytelling. And I was able to give a, a tour of my living room with all my comedy memorabilia with Milton Berle and Groucho Marx and Sid Caesar. It was a lot of fun, and uh, it was something that I did early on, mid March, uh, before there was this you know this this, this this wonderful influx of streaming. Wow. I plan on doing it again, so it's been a treat. So Frank Ferrante uh, joining us, who uh, does um, uh, portrays Groucho Mark. Uh, so Frank, are, are you doing a, like a full-length production like you would do uh, when you're on tour? Uh, no, it's, it's actually not. I started to 45 minutes, kind of highlight. So I'm doing one-liners and singing, you know, hooray for Captain Spaulding, but also telling show business stories and talking about you know, I, I love the theater, so I'll, I'll show someone a, uh, a painting that Zero Mostel did, or uh, there'll be a portrait of uh, Uncle Milk. That's nice. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. So it's a, a more intimate uh, kind of performance. And I've been really fortunate because I've done the show for like three, about 3,000 performances in multiple continents, and I get to talk to people that I... Uh, that I won't be able to see for a while. So good. Frank, thanks so much, Frank Ferrante. Uh, Dave Brooks of Billboard, uh, just in closing, um, are, are, as long as this goes, you anticipate we're going to be hearing um, additional artists performing from home? 
Oh, I think so. I think um, not only are we going to kind of have these, um, you know, one-time performances, but performances, I think you're going to see more artists, like, doing regular performances from their home. You, you know, Melissa Etheridge and, and the Cold War Kids and, you know, Sophie Tucker all doing um, daily streams of new material. So I, I think this could keep going not even past this um, crisis, which I, you know, hope it ends soon. So we need to get back out and see some live music, too. Yeah, boy, I, I'm with you. I so miss, as someone who goes to a lot of live music, um, I'm going through withdrawals. Dave Brooks, Senior Director of Live Music Coverage at Billboard. Thanks so much. Alice in Los Feliz says, I've so been enjoying the National Theater performances. They're free and great. And Susan and Hemet says, Andrea Bocelli, my favorite at-home concert on Easter Sunday. Shelley in Highland Park, I tuned in for the Willie Nelson 420 celebration hosted by him and his son on Facebook. They had a lot of other artists on as well. It was a lot of fun for 420. All right, Shelley, thanks very much. We leave you with Post Malone, who live-streamed a Nirvana tribute concert for coronavirus relief last Friday. It's Air Talk back in 90 seconds. I still love hearing that Randy Newman song, and I've heard it so many times. Such a great contribution to us as KPCC listeners. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Just a reminder, Governor Newsom's daily noon news conference coming up right after Air Talk. Well, not technically. You actually get to hear uh, what Terry has on Fresh Air first, and then you get to hear the governor right after that opening minute of Fresh Air. Well, with uh, those of us working from home, have multiple screens going and uh, maxing out our our, uh, bandwidth as we do that, it makes it very difficult for parents to have um, some sorts of limits on screen time because uh, dad and mom themselves may be working from home online all day in front of a screen, and uh, the kids are doing their schoolwork uh, also online throughout much of the day, plus want some entertainment time, too. So the question is, how can parents have some sort of sensible limits on time in front of a screen when our lives are now built on being in front of a screen? If you have advice, I'd like to hear it. 866-893-KP. CC 866-893-5722. Joining me from UCLA, adjunct professor of child psychology and the founder of UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytelling, uh, Yalda uh, T. Ulls. Yalda, thank you so much for joining us on AirTalk. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. So um, this is something you've written about, including uh, your book, Media Moms and Digital Dads. Um, It was a lot easier to have limits before, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. But the good news is there's been a lot of research um, in the last 15 years since mobile technology has entered our lives, you know, with a huge force. And there's a lot of positive findings on how media impacts kids. So my takeaway to most parents would be to feel okay, um, to, to not worry too much about 
the limits and um, focus on some of the positive things that your children are gaining from being able to have screens at this point. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. She's a researcher of media content for kids, author of Media Moms and Digital Dads, a fact-not-fear approach to parenting in the digital age. Uh, Yalda Uhl's with us on AirTalk, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page. One of the things that we've heard over the years is um, that it is important Important to have some sort of total limit on screen time. Does that make sense to you or not? Well, I mean, it definitely makes sense in the context of knowing your child. And if you feel that your child has been on screens for too long, isn't sleeping well, isn't socializing, then yes, you can set some limits. But actually, many, many social science researchers and people who study child development and media recommend that parents think more about the content, the context, your individual child, and what your child's using the media for rather than time limits. Because all media aren't created equal. There's very high quality media. If you're interacting with your child or they're using it to socialize, you know, you may not necessarily want to have some strict limit. All right, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Something that was often talked about pejoratively, screen time, and talking about how that put family members into their own worlds, kept them from relating to each other. Well, now it connects to people's livelihood. If they're able to work at home, and of course kids, that's how they're staying connected with their coursework, uh, is um, doing it online. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Are there particular apps that you think are are helpful um, for, for kids you know, to get the best use out of what time they are spending in front of the screen? Well, it really differs by age. So for younger kids, um, you know, it's very hard to know which apps are actually educational. I often recommend Common Sense uh, Media as a resource to um, check what the content is. There's also a really nice framework on the Zero to Three um, website called eAIMS, and it talks about a way to evaluate apps, um, looking at whether they engage your kid, whether they make them active, um, whether they um, work for their interests, are they motivated to use it. So there's different sort of places you can go to check on what kind of apps are good. Um, And as kids get older, you know, they're going to want to be on social media and they're going to want to use it to connect. And um, for teens and tweens, hanging out with their peers is so developmentally important. It's really their lifeline. And the fact that they have a way to connect, even though we're all staying at home um, through social media, is wonderful. Winona, in Huntington Beach, you're on Air Talk. Hi, my um, granddaughter is in North Carolina, and I'm in California. And so what we do every day is uh, we hook up with Um, Epic, which is a digital kids library, and we read books together. We do need two devices. So we have her mom's phone for FaceTime, and I have my phone so we can see each other. And then we look at our iPads to read books together, and we do it every day. We just did it for an hour um, before I called you. And describe a little bit how that works. So you're reading the same section of the book? 
Yes, we actually, um, what's nice is um, with this particular um, app, we can um, we can actually look at the same thing. Both of us can get in at the same time. So I let her pick the books, and then um, sometimes she reads a page, then I read a page, or she at night for a bedtime story for her um, for my grandson, too, who's four. I just read to them, and they end up going to sleep as I read to them. How nice. That must be a great feeling, Winona. Well, it is because I'm a grandparent who can't hug my grandkids anymore, you know, right now. And so it's been rough. And they were supposed to come out in in um, July this summer, and we're putting that trip on hold, of course. So, yeah. It's- Winona, then, do you talk about what you've read together after you've read it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Or I'll ask her questions. I because I don't want it to just be the reading. I want it to be connection. So I make comments, ask her questions as we go along. And, and um, so there's just a lot of interaction that way, too. You sound like a terrific grandmother, Winona. Thank you so much. Great to hear about uh, that. Uh, let's ask our guests, uh, Yalda Uls, have you heard uh, about this joint reading? Yes, absolutely. Um, definitely. Parents, grandparents, um, you know, relatives, friends, being able to connect um, and being able to read or or even talk about language, talk about things during the day. Um, yeah. And there is actually a lot of research that shows um, that video chat, which is essentially what you're doing, is a good way for kids to learn language. All right, Winona, thanks. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. How are you managing screen time in your family when being in front of a screen connects now to education and livelihood and has become essential? 866-893-5722. Michelle tweets at AirTalk every 30 minutes of practicing the piano or playing a game outside. They can have 15 minutes of screen time. That's Michelle tweeting at AirTalk. We'll be back in one minute. Back in 2016, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued its guidelines that kids aged 2 to 5 should have no more than one hour of screen time per day. Uh, So the question is, um, for the littlest members of your family, is that achievable or even desirable? We're at 866-893-KPECC. UCLA adjunct professor of child psychology, Yalda Uls with us, founder of the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA and author of Media Moms and Digital Dads. Uh, Yalda, what do you think about that recommendation from four years ago of maximum hour screen time a day for the youngest kids? I think it's really challenging, especially if you have two children. It's much easier when you have one child, but when you have two and the older one is watching more, it's challenging. And um, I do believe that the recommendation is around entertainment media. So it's, um, I do believe that some um, learning media is, you, is actually within, allowed within the recommendation outside of that hour. Um, and obviously in a pre-COVID world, if you could do that, that's wonderful. But in a COVID world, um, parents should feel reassured 
that um, more screen time is not necessarily negative. And there's so many great educational things, even for the littlest kids. It's, it's amazing the resources that are there. Absolutely. There's so many resources. There's so many ways to connect. There's so many great videos. There's um, activities. I just read an article today that said some of these littler kids are happier than ever because their parents are home and actually with them. Um, but that is one thing I would actually caution parents because a lot of parents are working from home and it's incredibly challenging with little children. But So don't worry too much that you're looking at your screen, but make sure to put your screen down sometimes and spend time face-to-face with your child. All right. Uh, Lois in Santa Monica, good to have you with us. Uh, so share with us how you're managing screen time with your family. Well, actually, I'm doing uh, FaceTime with uh, my two grandchildren up in Seattle. I figured they could use a little, uh, some geography lessons in their um, homeschooling in the morning. So twice a week, my daughter and I connect, and um, the lessons are traveling the world with Mima. That's me. And um, so I pick a place ahead of time that I've been to. And um, they have to look up a couple of uh, questions of information and find it on the map. And I share some photos uh, from my life or my visit there and maybe a couple of stories. And so they have to teach me something and I have to teach them something. Wow, we have some wonderful grandparents in the audience. Lois, that sounds terrific. Uh, Your grandkids, I bet, look forward to that each day. Or twice a week. And it, yeah, and it's a nice way. They're learning something. I'm learning something. Um, my my six-year-old grandson yesterday said, oh, the Danube goes through 10 different countries. I didn't know that, but I played <laughs> the blue Danube on the piano for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Lois, thanks so much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Love to hear from some parents. Uh, If you feel like your kids are spending too much time in front of a screen, uh, how are you trying to deal with that? And what are some of the challenges you're facing along the way? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Y'all, did you know... um, are a lot of parents doing video conferencing um, with other parents and with kids and sort of, you know, finding ways to, to socially and educationally connect up in larger groups? Yeah, absolutely. And birthday parties. I've heard of so many creative ways that people have done birthday parties um, for both kids and for adults. Um, you know, and, and having play dates that are, you know, traditionally when kids are younger, sometimes the play dates are for the grownups too. So this is a way for them to have play dates on screen without, um, getting, putting themselves in harm's way. Well, and I was, I was also wondering, you know, homeschoolers kind of had a head start on this stuff because they're already linking up with other homeschooling parents and, and have all kinds of different ways in and out of the home, um, to teach and um, but I wonder if some of this stuff now, uh, the parents who had not prior to this been homeschooling are figuring out different ways educationally to link up with other parents. Well, I actually really loved um, the grandmother who just spoke that actually probably the person that's most grateful is the mom, because maybe she could take a little bit of a break while the grandmother. Yeah video chatting and actually teaching lessons to the child um, that the mom might have had to do or the dad on their own um, before. 
Y'all just, you know, one of the concerns about screens that we've heard is that when you read on a screen versus even reading in a book, that the brain works differently. And so the concern that's been expressed is if people are always reading off of a screen, the way that's stored in memory, the way we we cognitively process that, that um, there's a downside to that, that it would be better if we're also um, reading things that aren't on a screen to balance it out. you agree with that? No, actually, and we've done research in um, our lab, at the, um, the lab that I was previously at, the Children's Digital Media Center, where we looked at um, reading on paper versus screens and how it impacted um, memory and knowledge, and we found no difference whatsoever in the way um, when someone read on a screen, as long as the screen wasn't connected to the Internet. Um, once you introduce the Internet, there's distraction and different possibilities, but actually reading on a screen versus reading on paper, we found no difference whatsoever. All right. And concerns about uh, blue light with people staring at screens for so long? Yeah, a lot of people ask about the blue light. The blue light studies have been done on very small samples, very few children. Um, it can't hurt. I mean, night shift is very easy, and there's there's a lot of adjustments. It can't hurt to use these tools. But And also it's very important, if you can, to just not have the screen in the bedroom at least an hour before um, bedtime. And frankly, you know, when they're older, if you can keep it out of their bedroom. But that's not necessarily because of the blue light. That's more because of distraction or, you know, stimulus, um, reasons like that. All right. Uh, Yalda T. Ools, thank you so much for talking with us about screen time in the home uh, at this time where everybody's on their screen throughout the day and into the evening. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. I love being here. Thank you. From UCLA, where she founded the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, adjunct professor of child psychology there, Yalda T. Ools, and author of Media Moms and Digital Dads, A Fact Not Fear Approach, to parenting in the digital age. We wish you a very good afternoon. Please uh, stay safe and healthy. Coming up for just a minute, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, then Governor Gavin Newsom's daily news conference, and then after that's done, back to Fresh Air for the balance of the hour with Terry Gross. Talking with you tomorrow morning at 10 for the next Air Talk here on 89.3.